Bible and faith in God and in Jesus Christ. Mr. Hoover's report to President Truman and America on world food conditions. If you're listening now, you've tuned into the beacon. Radio 666 at the far left of your dial. South of heaven and north of hell. It's the sound of the future. Raw and funky. Dirty and musty. The freak out is happening here. This is Commander Lowe saying, get to the beacon where the party never stops and the sound is way happening. Welcome to Baron Banjo. This episode's made from the tape-recorded journals of the musicologist, Dr. Asa B. Quickly, the holder of the Henry Rowland Bird Chair of American Studies at the University of Oxford, the one in Mississippi, of course. At this time, Dr. Q's engaged in a dedicated study of the two men referred to in Southern folklore as Bear and Banjo. This unlikely pair seems to have appeared at key moments in the development of the mid-century American musical vernacular, while for the most part eluding the historical record. But Dr. Q is determined to separate the myth from the actual history. Hello, and welcome to the final episode of my podcast for this season. We know that Jay Banjo and Mr. Bear had limited success in the early part of the century, essentially missing the boat during the Big Bang of recorded music. While the Library of Congress and their army of musical archivists went to the crossroads to find folk and blues songs of the working man, these two were trying to make a quick buck or running a long con. Instead of finding a spotlight for their unique talent, they would find themselves in and out of the prison system and oftentimes brushing past important moments in recorded music. For a fuller picture of their contribution to contemporary music, I turn to the renowned musicologist G. Walton Luster. Dr. Q has become an essential resource on pretty much everything that we're starting to understand on Bear and Banjo. Their work with MK Ultra veers them into the territory of being not only musicians, but inventors of musical technology. Through his research, we now know that Jay Banjo actually holds several patents on weaponized audio, which is fascinating. Many labels and producers still use these techniques to create earworms, and I don't think Jay Banjo will ever get the proper credit for this. We know that he invented at least one recording technique, later borrowed by novelty actor Chipmunks to hypnotize young minds with novel sounds. Their contribution to music, just from the technical side, is enormous, but largely unheralded and unknown. This observation gave me pause. To get a real pulse on the topic, I went to the South by Southwest Music Conference on the recommendation of one of my graduate students and recorded some man-on-the-street interviews to find out if the names Bear and Banjo had any significance for today's music-minded enthusiast. Hello. Hello there, I'm Dr. Q. Yes, uh, please, a moment of your time. Uh, would you please listen to this music and tell me if you can recognize the artist? Um, honestly, it sounds to me like Moby. Like, you know Moby, like how he takes, like, old recordings from, like, people who live in a swamp or something, and then he adds a beat or something. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely Moby. Kanye, I know this. This is his new church music. I dig. Sunday services. This is my jam. <laughs> oh, yeah, I like this a lot. It, uh, blends early century ideas. Is this book of white? Skip James? I gathered these sorts of interviews for several hours. Some of the answers were downright amusing. <laughs> this is 100% Justin Bieber. I didn't know that he was doing folk music now. He needs to release this. This is wild. I would listen to this. So you think this is Justin Bieber? Without question, dude. Totally. I'm a believer, man. Are you a believer? <laughs> uh, no. 
I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No. Um, <laughs> I don't. Uh, what? What is a believer? You have to ask. You probably aren't, man. <laughs> I don't think I am. Not quite yet. <laughs> Too bad, man. Your loss. <laughs> These interviews left me with great sorrow in my heart and even greater worry for our future. The youth of today appeared to me to be lobotomized creatures. Music to them was a precise realization of Sir Vlad's horrible vision. Music was product, nothing more. A vast, unending inventory of tunes queued up for your turn on the hamster wheel. We live in a world of constant distraction now, where geniuses have no place unless capable of creating hit singles. Ironically, Bear and Banjo's greatest contribution was not in the end their music, but Banjo's technology. If anything, his work for Army Intelligence on the Acoustic Weapons Research Project gave forth the earworm. And for good or ill, the entirety of popular music rests on Banjo's formula. But all hope cannot be abandoned for music, and especially for rock and roll which is in a constant state of destruction and reinvention, a musical dialectic that pits generation against generation. As I pondered this notion, my next stop was to pay a visit to a man I had been hoping to speak to for quite some time. Having finally tracked him down, he was the real reason I had ventured to Austin, Texas, Mr. Herman Hesch Schwartz. Mr. Schwartz. You are a hard man to find. <laughs> Not hard enough, apparently. Depends who's looking, I guess. By the way, you can call me Hesh. Back in the day, Hesh was a legendary manager, producer, and king of all booking agents. He also happened to be responsible for Bear and Banjo's first tour, which ended up also being their final one, for reasons we'll get into in a bit. Hesh is now the proprietor of a beat-up honky-tonk bar in the middle of Austin's music district. On the night I spoke with him, it wasn't crowded, but there was a band playing honest music well into the night, and those of us that were there surely appreciated it. Hesh, much to my delight, was eager to talk. I've been waiting almost 60 years to tell this story. You were born in Chicago, right? Southside, 1924. That's right. My father ran booze for Al Capone. So he had Bugs Moran, who controlled the North Side, the Irish, and the Sicilian Jewish mob, and it was a very violent time. And my pop was right in the middle of it, but I guess he was lucky, right? He was a survivor. He used to say to me, uh, if it don't kill you, Hesse, it makes you stronger. So you were a connected guy. Yeah, pretty much from day one. Uh, but I was afraid of the violence, you know? I never liked guns. I hated fighting. I was a real uh, cerebral kind of kid, you know? Uh, so I ended up going to University of Wisconsin. I graduated magna cum laude, served two years in the Pacific during World War II. When I got out, they put me to work in the South Side nightclubs doing the books and booking the bands. Um, what was that like? Oh, it was something. You gotta understand, almost the entirety of show business was born in a 20-block radius on Chicago's South Side in Jewish neighborhoods like Lawndale. And for a bit there, I was Lou Wasserman's driver, right? He was only a few years older than me, and he went on to run Hollywood for like 40 years. MCA started in the crappy one-bedroom apartment he shared with his brother, and they were connected too, but that's a whole nother story. You, you were booking jazz players? You name them, I gave them a shot at one of our clubs. Dizzy Gillespie, Monk, Art Blakely, Miles, Coltrane, I tell you, I was a real jazz hound back then, until I met Leonard Chess at the Macomba Lounge. After that, it was all R&B, right? They called it race music back then. Finally, it was just rock and roll. And for that, I gotta thank Bear and Banjo. I don't know what you heard about that tour, that it was this huge fiasco. Uh, and it was, absolutely. But for 20 nights in 20 cities, those cats invented rock and roll. Were you a full-fledged tour agent back then? Ah, uh, hell no. I was a 38-year-old club promoter with a wife and three kids to support. Not to mention, I was owned lock, stock, and barrel by the Chicago outfit, right? So they told me to book Bear and Banjo into their joints, and I did what I was told. 
Uh, these were all supper clubs and sleazy lounges for the most part. Uh, so the plan was they'd start out in New York City and make their way to the Midwest and then down south to New Orleans. You know, later on, I come to find out that the entire route was based on drop points for Vegas casino skim money that Bear and Banjo were to give to their handlers in each city. <laughs> so they had no idea what they were delivering. It was like, that was the deal, you know? You want to go on tour? Okay, then. You play these clubs, you take these packages to these people. No discussion, no questions asked. Mm -hmm. Ah, I see. And, and how did you get to be the tour manager? Well, I wasn't. Uh, until I was told I was... And then I was. <laughs> That's kind of how things worked. Um, so suddenly, I'm driving them to their gigs. The thing is, Bear never let anybody drive that Cadillac but him. And Banjo always rode shotgun. So I became their uh, backseat driver. I, gosh, I just have a million questions. You're the first person I've personally spoke to who was close to Bear and Banjo. I wouldn't say close. Uh, the only people they were truly close to was each other. Understand? Huh. Everybody else, no matter who they were or what they did, were always considered to be on the outside. Uh, now, Banjo, of course, he was, you know, the super gregarious type, talking a mile a minute, telling jokes. Bear was uh, harder to read, you know? He was like a brick wall. Uh, after a while, I, I started to see and realize that Bear was this honest broker, both in business and how he dealt with people on, like, a personal level, you know? And it took him a while to trust you, but once he did, you were in. Unless, of course, you abused that trust, and then you were out for good. Uh, Banjo, on the other hand, I finally figured out that, that all that friendliness was really, you know, a, a kind of shield, right? He'd use it to make you feel like you knew him, but you didn't. Not really. I think deep down, he was pretty troubled. Uh, do you remember at all what they were paid? <laughs> Not much, that's for sure. Uh, which is crazy, because I know for a fact that I had over $2 million in skim money in the trunk. That's a fact, okay? But they didn't care about the money. All they talked about was getting to New Orleans and finding that sound. Yes, that do sound. We do know that they had a conversation with Ronnie the Hawk Hawkins. He dangled the idea of some new crazy sound coming out of New Orleans. It was a crazy time, but night after night they killed. No matter where it was they were playing. So the tour was a success. Eh, it depends on your definition of success. <laughs> Financially, it was a disaster for them. And then some other stuff happened with the feds later, which got them into all kinds of trouble, but... For 20 days, in August of 1959, they were the greatest rock and roll band on earth. Really? You have to understand, they weren't like anybody else performing. Uh, first of all, they were ace players, just tight as hell. And, you know, the gigs got progressively more packed. So in New York City, where things kicked off, the place was pretty empty, except for some knock-around guys who hung around the joint already. But by the time they reached Chicago, uh, every show was sold out in advance. Well, please, uh, could I indulge you to describe these gigs? <laughs> I can do better than that. I saved everything from that tour. I got flyers, receipts, recordings of all the gigs. Uh, I got Banjo's tour journal that he left behind after they disappeared in New Orleans. Want to read it? You've got to be kidding. I've been searching for this for 20 years. Well, yeah, I guess I was always planning to give it back to them, figuring they'd turn up eventually. But, you know, after all these years, I don't think that's going to happen. So you might as well just take the lot of it. You go through this stuff, you'll know every move these two made from New York to New Orleans. What are these tapes? That's the journal. It's an audio journal. <laughs> that's banjo for you, right? If it was happening, he wasn't happy unless he was getting it on tape. You know he met Alan Lomax, right? Right? Well, Banjo was convinced that he was going to out Lomax Lomax. Banjo was going to find the next big sound that would catapult music into the future. And he kept referring to it as his Lomax moment. 
He didn't want to miss a thing. Day 7, St. Louis. Our gigs have been getting tighter and tighter. Last night in Chicago was absolutely nuts. First of all, the place was packed. All the boys were out like a mob New Year's party. The boss was there, sitting in the back with his sunglasses on. I brought Momo. <laughs> I mean, Mr. Ginkana, his package, which looked, from the way he was counting, to be about 200 large. We took to the stage around 10 p.m., and by that time, the place was swinging from the rafters. Up front were all these kids, rough-looking greaser types. There have been a lot of fights at our shows. In St. Louis, I had to dispatch some punk from the stage with an acoustic guitar to the back of the head, because he was trying to sing along. My stage. Whack! Wound up stopping the show, jumping into the crowd, beating the pulp out of him and a few of his friends. Finally, Bear, who comes strapped to each gig with a long-barreled 44 magnifiers, two rounds into the ceiling, and everybody disperses. So I get back on stage, and we get right back to the song. Crowd went absolutely berserk. I had to plead with Momo not to disappear the kids. Told them they're just messing around. Uh, that Chicago gig was one for the record books, right? Uh, so yeah, there was all that mayhem going on. And, you know, that wasn't odd, because that was every night. <laughs> I mean, we started calling the tour 50-50, uh, in that there was always a 50% chance that they would even play a full gig, 50% chance that there'd be a brawl, 50% chance somebody would get stabbed with a switchblade, and 50% chance somebody would take out their piece and fire some rounds. Uh, <laughs> what I kept noticing was, you know, who was showing up. Uh, first of all, he had all the top musicians. They'd show up and just want to get on stage. Sister Rosetta Tharp joined them on stage one night. Uh, little Richard sang with them and played piano. When we were in Memphis, all the Sun Records guys showed up at the same time. It was nuts. Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, they all wanted to play with Bear and Banjo. Hello, Chicago. We're Bear and a Banjo, and we're sure glad to be here at the Pump House. I understand we have some friends in the audience tonight. Muddy Waters, ladies and gentlemen. Little Walter's here. Oh, Chuck Berry's here, but you already know that because he's been playing all night. And look at that. Howlin' Wolf is here. And Lightning Hopkins. Settle down, folks. We're here all night. All right, fellas. Uh, what should we play? Feeling like a So it went like that night after night. These kids in the audience at every venue watching Bear and Banjo like, you know, they had the answer. In city after city, in the wake of these shows, a hundred different bands would be created. And I, I can't tell you how many rockers have cited this tour as the moment when they decided they wanted to play music. Keith was already on his way, right? But, you know, in Detroit, a young Stevie Wonder was in the audience. Uh, Marvin Gaye saw a show in Washington, D.C. New York City, I think Lou Reed and Patti Smith and probably a dozen others were there. And the guys, they knew that they were, they were killing, you know? You could see it on their faces. They were seeing themselves for the first time as, as artists. And, you know, there's a moment in time with a, with a band or a performer when they've had a string of great gigs that they sense their own power, you know? And when that happens, they start playing at another level. It's, it's almost godly, you know? There's an energy between performer and audience. Everything just has this flow. I'm realizing for the first time we might actually be good at this. No con, no short money. I mean, we're playing so far above ourselves and the crowds continue to get bigger and bigger. Sonny Liston showed up in St. Louis wearing a floor-length fur coat. It's August. He had seven women with him at the gig. Said five were for him, and that left one each for Bear and I. Needless to say, we had a good time in Sonny's hotel room. Anyways, there was this fella there, Morris, uh, something or other, offered us a record deal. Hesh said, he's no good, wants us to cut a deal with Atlantic Records. He's arranged for this fellow Ahmed Erdogan to meet us in New Orleans. And I don't want to jinx this action, but I feel like it's all happening. And New Orleans is the final piece of the puzzle. Without that sound, there ain't no record. Bear and Banjo were riding high. They'd spun chaos into gold in a way that they only knew how to. 
Pulling into Dallas, just days away from New Orleans, Ronnie Hawkins suddenly walked back into their lives. And with that, their ace in the hole turned into a big, fat joker. Oh, Ronnie Hawkins? Oi. Everything, everything was going fantastic until he showed up. And, and once he did, hell came to visit and the boys just imploded. Ronnie, tell us why Bear and a Banjo went to Louisiana. I told them the sound you want is in Louisiana, man. I said if anyone ever catches that voodoo music and bottles it, well, they'll be richer than their wildest dreams. Now, the hard part is finding it. And I warned them, I said, this is dangerous, you know, magic and voodoo and stuff you don't want to go messing with, but heck, you know, I think that only piqued their interest more. I feel kind of partly responsible for what happened when they went looking. You were 100% responsible for what happened next. Who said that? Every single person Dr. Q has gotten me to interview has said Ronnie Hawkins is responsible for what happened in New Orleans. Shit. <laughs> Well, I guess they're right then. I mean, I definitely got them in the jackpot. Fine, man. But then again, so did those Leuven brothers. Who are the Leuven brothers? <laughs> Possibly the biggest lunatics in the history of country music. Ira and Charlie Leuven, better known as the Leuven brothers, were an American musical duo who performed secular country music as well as fire and brimstone gospel. After becoming regulars on the Grand Ole Opry and scoring a string of hits in the late 50s, they went on to record Satan is Real, their notorious opus in 1959. More than the album itself, it was the album cover that's remembered today. It was designed by Ira Leuven. It featured the brothers standing in a rock quarry in front of a 12-foot-tall plywood rendition of the devil. Several hidden tires soaked in kerosene burned behind them as the fire and brimstone of hell. I'm in Nashville, holed up in some hotel after probably the most messed up day of my lousy life. Somehow Hesh talked us into meeting these two the country boys who go by the name Leuven and do a whole fire and brimstone act. But with names like Charlie and Ira, I figured they're about as Baptist as Shecky Green. <laughs> you know, playing some kind of hillbilly act. But these boys were the real deal, man. These cats were realer than real, like two characters ripped from the Old Testament. One as pure as snow and the other as evil as can be. So we get to their studio and they got some plywood devil soaked in kerosene that they're going to light on fire, then photograph it for the cover of their record. Now, I don't believe in heaven or hell or the devil or any of that, but even I was worried that we were attempting something somewhere with this whole business. Plus, the faint smell of voodoo and evil was in the air. We were tempting fate on all fronts. Well, those Leuven boys, yeah. Well, they had real moxie. Real clever boys, you know. And their music was similar to Bear and Banjo. Innovative, different, haunted. Uh, plus, you know, they were kindred spirits. Both hustlers and weirdos with chips on their shoulders and something to prove. So, yeah, I put them together. I, I didn't have to pull their arms, you know. Now, having said that, how the hell was I supposed to know they'd nearly all burned to death in the process? We spent the day with them in this quarry where they had built the set. I've never consumed so much whiskey in my life. I'm still <laughs> completely three sheets of the wind. Uh, but man, uh, those boys can play, especially Ira, who absolutely rips on that mandolin. Yoo! But he's bad to the bone. He's also Baptist to the core, so all twisted around and guilt-ridden. He's been married four times, can you believe that? His third wife shot him in the chest after he tried strangling her with a telephone cord, so he's got what you call an atmosphere around him. Straight up frightened me, and when they set that devil on fire, it burned up everything in that quarry and created a fireball that you could see for miles, man. That'll be one hell of a cover, and those boys will have one hell of a career if they live. And again, they probably say that about us as well. The fire and overall debacle of the photo session was par for the course when dealing with the Leuven brothers. They took things as they came, which usually meant badly. But they also confirmed for Banjo that the sound they were looking for definitely existed that there is and was a voodoo radio station down south, but the Leuvens didn't want any part of it. They told Banjo in no uncertain terms that if he wanted to follow the word of God, 
He should avoid this place at all cost. To which Banjo replied, Luckily, I am a Jew. Devil or whatever don't want no part of me. Ira Leuven looked him square in the eye and said, The devil's in all of us, boys. He don't know about religion. He just know about good and evil. Ye either walk the path of righteousness or ye burn with the wicked. A fun fact about this photo shoot is that the cartoonish devil image ended up taking on a significance of its own in pop culture. Lampooned in countless film and TV shows, as rumor goes, the South Park creators based their version of the devil on it. Go figure, what was meant to scare folks into heaven turned into one big jokey hell. Yeah, I thought about leaving after Nashville, but, you know, just as we were getting ready to shove off, Hawk shows up, and I knew that meant trouble. So I, I stayed, thinking I could help make sure things didn't go off the rails, right? Uh, my main worry was Mr. Bear, because Hawk was, was busy getting Banjo all riled up about this, you know, this new sound they were heading for. And I, I sort of got this feeling that, that Bear felt like he didn't have any choice but to follow along after him. And I remember, I remember telling him, just pack up your stuff and leave. You know, I, I told him, you can do better on your own. And I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I got this sense that Bear, Bear was feeling really uh, dark at the time. And it was only much, much later when I heard the tapes he made around that time that I felt like I understood him a whole lot better. This is Phineas Nestor Bear recording his last will and testament. Shall I perish in the next few days? I wish to divide the proceeds of my state in the following manner. Wow, so Bear had a premonition that something bad was on the horizon. Well, I, th I think we all did. <laughs> but it seemed to put Bear into an especially philosophical state of mind. It got him to thinking about where he'd come from, where he'd been. And listening to this tape, uh, <laughs> it was more than I'd heard him talk the whole time I knew him. When I was 16 years old, a hurricane whipped through Miami like none other I'd ever seen before or after. It was a ferocious storm. That said, the destruction, the event that would alter the course of my life that lasted no more than a few minutes. It was just like a war zone. It destroyed the whole neighborhood. And one thing you need to understand is that these houses were our entire life. You have to understand, unlike white folks, we don't buy stocks or bonds. There's no money market account or pension. Everything we had in this world was tied up in that house that we lived in. Our equity, as they say, began and ended at that front door. So when that hurricane came through and destroyed our block, it wasn't just the house that went down, but the entire generations of our wealth accumulation. In the blink of an eye, people who were doing pretty well in life despite their circumstances suddenly had nothing. In fact, they had less money than nothing. As they still owe money on their mortgage, generations were just wiped out. So we all scattered like seeds in the wind. And kids like me, we were victims, man. We just got sent away to our relatives, whoever could take care of us. So this wasn't just weather. It was the collapse of our entire family unit. Generations of people were ripped apart. That alone will leave a mark on you to the end of days. This is where I start having trouble piecing together the full story of Phineas Nestor Bear as he identified himself above. We know, for instance, that a pre-FEMA government organization captured field recordings of early century catastrophes to measure the impact of displacement on victims of hurricanes, floods, and other natural disasters, which led us to information which completes some of the backstory. This is a tale of poverty and ambition, two signature elements that make up the composition of American excellence. Yeah, I remember moving to Atlanta in the 1930s, and after we settled in and found permanent housing, it wasn't all that bad. I was excited because these kids' groups were out. The Stems, the Walker Boys, and so many other acts were coming out of Atlanta. It was like the new musical mecca of the South, and I felt like I could do it because these other kids were really successful. After I turned 17, I came up with some songs, and I had success on the race charts right out the gate. And then one day, my luck just changed. It stopped. 
This was long, long before I met Jay Banjo. I would suffer a lot before and after he came into my life. When I was 17, after tasting a bit of success, we lost everything again in Atlanta when a fire tore through our complex. Our whole building burned down. We were left again with nothing, homeless and helpless. Suddenly, music felt frivolous. As we had no money, nothing to eat, we were literally starving, like literally. So I took a job loading trucks to support everybody, and I tried to do my songwriting at night. One day, I see an ad in the classifieds that says, songs needed for a musical theater ensemble. So I wrote down some new material, having never been to a musical, and went to the address that was listed. Sitting in that room was Jay Banjo alone. He said he was a Broadway producer <laughs> and took a look at what I prepared and paid me $25 per song in cash. I made 250 bucks in one afternoon. Now that musical never got made, and I don't know what Banjo was up to because he was always up to something, running this con and that. But that money literally saved me and my family, and pretty much from there, we were a team. And despite all our troubles, the man always told me the truth. Even when he was lying to me, we always got paid. And I swore to myself I'd never be without paper again. It seems Bear had placed the future of not only himself, but his family in the hands of Jay Banjo. A dicey gamble if there ever was one. But Bear was born from bad luck and found that Banjo delivered more than anyone else had for him in his entire hard-scrabble life. But for Banjo, this lust for the sound was all-consuming. I thought I knew why, but I'd still rather let him say it in his own words. There's something really wrong with the hawk. I can't put my finger on it, but he seems like a different person. And maybe I'm a fool to ignore the warning signs, but I really believe he's telling the truth. He says, there's the sound and it exists somewhere down in New Orleans. No one has yet taken it into the mainstream. No one has been able to harness its power. I said, how do you know about it all? And the hawk says, I know about a lot of things, which is true, he does. The man can tell you how to siphon gas from a Lincoln, where to find the best steak in Tupelo, and how to stop a hooker from stealing your wallet while in the act of three-way passion. From one road dog to another, that's essential information. So when he told Bear and me that there's a radio signal that comes deep from the bayou and it broadcasts this thing like some kind of ghost radio station, we believed the crazy bastard. He told me he heard the sound and it possessed him. It made him buck wild and that he still ain't free from it. He said this could be the thing that makes you rich beyond your wildest dreams. Well, he got my attention. I just know if I don't at least try to find it, it will haunt me for the rest of my days. Well, I stayed with them out of morbid curiosity. And, you know, on the off chance that this was real, my 10%, uh, banjo, of course, never stopped recording. We're making our way from Nashville to New Orleans now. For the past two days, it's been pretty uneventful, but I'm starting to get a feeling that we are getting close to something. The landscape has changed dramatically. All of a sudden, we find ourselves in the middle of a swamp, and it feels as if we're about to be swallowed up by something dark and dangerous. I can feel its energy pulling me close. Boys, turn on your radio and tune the dial all the way down to the left where it can go no further. Bible and faith in God and in Jesus Christ. Mr. Hoover's report to President Truman and America on world food conditions. If you're listening now, you've tuned into the beacon. Radio 666 at the far left of your dial. South of heaven and north of hell. It's the sound of the future. Raw and funky. Dirty and musty. The freakout is happening here. This is Commander Lowe saying, get to the beacon where the party never stops and the sound is way happening. Now you hear that, boys? That's your station. We're close. Close to what? Where's that signal coming from? And who's Commander Lowe? You asked too many questions, Banjo. Did you hear the man? Or even better, did you hear the music? Yeah, I heard it. It sent chills down my spine. All right then, just keep your eyes peeled for a transmitting tower. Holy crap, I see it! 666, all lit up and everything. We can hear Bear cutting the wheel towards the tower as they drove their Cadillac down a dirt embankment, finally reaching a small shack with a massive 100-foot antenna. They park the car, and we can hear Banjo sprint for the door, the faint sound of him wrapping his knuckles on the steel. 
A small man, dwarf size, came ambling out and identifies himself as just a relay man. He tells Banjo that the actual sound is being broadcast from another location and is relayed to this tower, which then blasted out to all points north. The conversation is muffled and distant, but heated, as the man warns Banjo in no uncertain terms that to investigate further would be a mistake. Hey, y'all better go on back where you came. You ain't gonna find nothing but pure evil around here. Guy says the song is from some perversion of traditional voodoo culture. Says it's something so dark and evil, we'd be fools not to turn back and forget we ever heard about it. And what'd you say to him? I told him, tell me where to find the goddamn song in its entirety, or I was gonna tear apart the shack with him inside it. So he gave me some directions. Bear, take a left. According to Banjo, the relay man told him of a ritual deep in the woods where the song in question is played on a loop over and over again. And as fortune would have it, said ritual was taking place that very night under the full moon. The first sign that they were headed in the right direction was the sound of frogs croaking in a pentatonic sequence. Keep heading towards the frogs, the relay man warned and you will eventually find a gathering of people dressed in a particular way that you surely will recognize. Uh, at this point, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. You know, uh, none of this made sense to me. But Banjo was determined, so Bear kept on driving where he told him to, and it just it felt like it was getting darker and darker, and somehow even more humid than it had been before, which hardly seemed possible. Uh, I was schwitzing, and I was terrified. But Banjo was a man possessed. I can feel it, Bear. This is where it's all been leading. All we gotta do is bring this song back to civilization, and we're set for life. I hope you're right, Banjo, because if you're wrong, it's gonna be a hell of a thing. We're running on blind faith now, my friend. The same faith that led us to this point, together. It's funny, I always thought it'd be our songs that would lead us to the promised land. But up to this point, we ain't been going nowhere. hundreds of people just dancing in a circle around the bonfire, right? And these people are completely naked and covered in what looked to be blood. Uh, I wasn't sure, but they were chanting and screaming, and out of the corner of my eye, I see I see chickens being gutted, and, and the head of a cow just get hacked off with a machete, and always that sound. And before I could say anything... Banjo had removed all his clothes, and so had the hawk, and both of them were just running for the bonfire, right? So I grabbed the tape machine, and I tried to get closer without anybody seeing me, and that's when things just started to get crazy. Uh, I see this guy come out on this platform, and he just looks terrified, terrified. And I look over where Banjo is, and I can tell right away, that Banjo already knows this freak. Mr. Banjo, we meet again. Wait a second, Sir Vlad? Just to make sure we're all following along, it was indeed Sir Gregson Vlad III, whom you most certainly will recall from Bear and a Banjo's visit to Wolf Lodge for the single most unpleasant birthday party that either of them would ever attend. And I assume you have brought Mr. Bear with you as well? I hope so. For the two of you are my guests of honor tonight. Brought here with the help of my slave. I'm sorry, I mean my friend, Mr. Hawkins. He brought you to me right on schedule. Ronnie, what's he talking about? (laughs) I'm sorry, Banjo. He owns my soul. True story. Ronnie, nobody owns anybody's soul. No, no, no. He does. 
I ate one of his peaches, and now I do what he says, or he hurts me. Oi, Vejmir, this guy and his peaches. I command you to walk towards me, Banjo, and drink from this skull filled with blood. You have no choice but to obey me. Sorry, I don't believe in all that. I think sometimes a peach is just a peach. Fair enough. Slaves, grab Mr. Banjo and bring him to me. What the hell? Put me down, you freaks. I just about had enough of this voodoo nonsense, man. You let my partner go, I'll start shooting white folks at the count of ten. Bear, how wonderful to see you. You're just in time. Oh! Oh, God! <coughs> you shot me. Yeah, I changed my mind about counting ten. I don't like your tone. A curse! A curse on your everlasting souls! You will be failures! Do you hear me? Failures! God, you shot me again! I said I ain't like your tone, and then you made it worse. You left me with no options, man. Your children will be failures, too. I curse your bloodlines. Let's burn some rubber out of here, man. Wait, 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 wait. What about the sound? The sound? Banjo, look at yourself. You're naked, butt naked. I just rescued you from a bunch of freaks that were lifting you up for a drink from a blood skull. I think I've been pretty open-minded in coming all this way looking for that new sound. But now that we've seen what's up, and it's a bunch of weird-ass freaky stuff going on down here, neither of us can explain. I say it's time we burn some rubber and get out of here, like, immediately. I dig the groove, but it ain't worked all this, and I'm not interested in having a discussion about it. Now get in the car. They left New Orleans like two sad sacks without a hope in the world. For all of their pirate antics, they had no treasure to show for any of their years of toil and plunder, just a now-junked Cadillac and wads of spent cash. Afraid for their lives, they drove straight through two days and nights before hitting the small town of Hibbing, Minnesota. Known for being a mining and resource-rich area of the Midwest, they unpacked in the quiet of that town and went to go see a minor league baseball game. What follows are the final recordings from Banjo's audio journal, the conclusion of their adventures together. So what, what made them stop in Hibbing? We ran out of gas and they ran out of money. You stayed with them? Yeah, sure, Chicago told me to keep an eye on them. Uh, but you know, they didn't give me any more money though. They said Bear and Banjo were all washed up, right? Just finished. But the boys, they really liked Banjo. You know, a wolf recognizes wolf kind of thing. And they wanted to make sure they'd be all right. So, you know, yeah, we ended up in this one meal town that smelled like my papa's stomach after he eats too much cabbage. <laughs> I'll let Banjo voice the rest. Hash is as loyal a manager as they come. The man believes in us, believes in our talent. We pull into this little nothing town, and right away, Hash is on the phone making calls. And before you know it, we got a gig. He got us a meeting with this fellow owns the local baseball team. Guys looking to drum up business, and the place is a wreck. It's falling apart. There's stray dogs in the outfield. Couldn't have been more than 20 people in the stands come game time, but... We tell him if he wants a song, we'll write him a song. Hell, we did a song for diapers. How hot can a Fakakta baseball song be? I've never seen two people work harder for $20 in all my life. Baron Banjo traded lines all morning, and they worked out a tune, which they played during the seventh inning stretch. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special treat for you in the announcer's box. All the way from... Say, where are you boys from? Man, we're from all over. All the way from all over. Banjo and the Bear. It's Bear and the Banjo, pal. Hello, Hibbing. We have a song for you. We hope you like it. Okay, then I guess everybody else is still at work or in the bar. Maybe I'll go join them when we're through here. And a one and two...
Thank you, Hibbing. That's a gift from us to you. I'd like to say we'll be here all week, but we just got gas money, so I'm afraid this will be goodbye forever. Sayonara. We walked out of the announcer's booth, and we're all set to hightail it out of there, right? Uh, but then there's this, this kid following along after us, this weird scrawny-looking little guy, and he's, he's waving at us, trying to get our attention. And Banjo, you know, bless his heart, he stops, and he heads back to see what this kid wants. And, of course, he's still got the tape recorder running. So, at the time, he talks to this kid, and it turns out uh, the kid's a fan. Excuse me, sirs. Sirs, can I talk to you for a moment? Uh, not now, kid. We're in a hurry to get out of here. This town smells really bad. I got all of your records. I collect music, play it, and keep the best ones. You know who we are? Yeah. Hey, can I ask, you mind showing me how you play the bridge on Nowhere? It reminds me of Lead Belly, mixed with early sister Rosetta Tharp, and a little bit of Woody Guthrie thrown in. Hell, kid, you know your stuff. So Banjo starts showing the kid how to play that bridge. And the kid's playing it back, and it sounds even better when he does it. And I'm, you know, sitting in the back seat of the car just waiting to get out of there. But then, all of a sudden, Bear's joining in, and the three of them are standing on the sidewalk trading licks. And this kid, you know, this young kid is telling them, that's not the blues, that's jazz. And uh, they're having it out, and the whole thing, and it's all on the tape. Uh, but eventually, you know, I say, guys, we, we, we got to go. And uh, they say their goodbyes, and we're on our way. And I, I remember distinctly Banjo saying that this kid was like a little encyclopedia of music. Like this kid was something else, you know, which was not typical, you know. These guys were as likely to, to pick this kid's pocket as to do him a favor. But I think they sensed in him a kindred spirit. And, uh, you know, that was that was the end of it anyway. Just a, a small, nice moment at the end of a, of a long journey. And it didn't even cross my mind again, you know, until quite a few years later when I decided I was going to listen to these tapes. You listened to all of them? Every single one. And it took me a while because, you know, Banjo recorded everything. Uh, so it was a long, long time before I finally got to the tape of this kid. I, I think maybe it's better if I just play you this final bit straight from the tape. Hey, kid. You got a name? Yeah, man. Bobby. Bobby Zimmerman. Please tell me there's more. Nope, that's the big one. And that's the end of the tapes. You know, I've been waiting for years to tell someone about these guys. I hope it wasn't a disappointment. Not in the slightest. This is everything we know about Baron Banjo. In turn, this is much Dr. Q's story as it's theirs. Everybody on this earth is searching for meaning. That's something that will soothe them in the dark hours. You may travel to all points of the globe looking for that thing that you feel you need. Some folks waste their entire life looking for treasure, former riches, knowledge, beauty, but they never find it, missing the whole point along the way. You may meet the most fabulous people in this lifetime, rich people, poor people, smart and dumb folks. And if you ain't paying attention, it'll fly by in a blur. In the end, you may find nothing, nothing except the greatest adventure of your life. If that's what you found, I reckon you have to ask yourself, wasn't it all worth it? Since you and I are the only experts on this topic, I have to ask a question that's been puzzling me. Any guesses as to how they could afford to create and produce music from the 1940s all the way through to the era you, you just described? I do have one idea, but it's hard to prove. And what's that? Well, uh, the mob didn't win any awards for record-keeping, if you catch my meaning. 
Ah, uh, I think I do. Probably the less said, the better. For all concerned. Indeed. Tonight's episode was written by Jingle Jared and Jimmy Jellinek. Baron of Banjo was created, executive produced, and directed by Jingle Jared. Executive produced by Dennis Quaid, T-Bone Burnett, and Jason Pooh Bear Boyd. With original music by Jason Pooh Bear Boyd and Jingle Jared, it's Baron of Banjo and T-Bone Burnett with lyrical contributions from Bob Dylan. All music from Baron Banjo is produced by T-Bone Burnett and all episodes edited by David Gulick. Additional score by Jeff Peters and Jeff Judy. Story editing by Connor Ratliff and associate produced by Emily Bolka. Produced by Tom Piazza, Noel Brown, Brian Walland, Jesse Corwin, and Dan DeMole. Co-produced by Rosanna Arquette. For episode music, please visit the iHeartRadio app or wherever one finds good music. Baron of Banjo is a production of Jingle Punks in partnership with iHeartRadio. Special thanks to John Ingrazia of Vector Management and Gary Morella of Mono Music. Krista Lenny from Maiden Creative, Gail Troberman, Connell Byrne, and the entire iHeart team. An extra special thanks to Sue Turner for being Baron Banjo's head of tour security. For a full list of production credits, behind-the-scenes footage, and source material, please visit baronbanjo.com. Jingle Punks is an anthem company.